Welcome one and all to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. I'm your host. My name is Jeremy Walker. I have the privilege of being a pastor and preacher in Maidenbower Baptist Church in Crawley in West Sussex, which is in the southeast of England. Each week, as we read our way through Spurgeon's sermons, we have the option of a weekly uh, featured sermon or a daily sermon. If you're following along on the daily readings, you can find us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon. And this week we're in Sermon 1116 through to 1122. But there's also a featured sermon each week, a representative sample of Spurgeon's ministry, exalting Christ and feeding the church of the Lord Jesus and that, with thanks to our friends at Media Gratii, uh, is available as a podcast, which you're listening to now. If you want to uh, get the featured sermon, you can sign up at mediagratii.org slash podcasts, where you'll find not only a link to uh, get that weekly sermon, but also other podcasts for your listening pleasure. This week, Sermon 1121, Christ Asleep in the Vessel. The sermon was preached from Mark chapter 4, verse 38, on the 13th of July, 1873, a Lord's Day morning at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in Newington. Spurgeon begins by uh, putting the uh, occasion in its context that you will find that this had been an illustrious day in which a remarkable display of teaching and healing power had been made by our Lord Jesus. Great crowds had been attracted. He had both delivered to them most precious parables and wrought among them most marvellous cures. But the day was not closing without a storm. And says Spurgeon, after the same manner, you will find it in the history of the Church of God that intermingled with great successes will be great afflictions. Pentecost is followed by persecution. Peter's sermon by Peter's imprisonment. And so may our loveliest calms be succeeded by overwhelming storms. A Christian man is seldom long at ease. Our life, like April weather, is made up of sunshine and showers. Interesting mix of shorter and longer sentences in that opening paragraph. Uh, Spurgeon's rhythms of speech are fascinating. Uh, but one thing he's good at is... Uh, at least occasionally, some of these uh, punchy statements that follow one another, making much the same sort of point, uh, but reinforcing and rehearsing the truth. So now you have the, uh, the disciples in the boat and the storm has come upon them. Many of them are now crying out, one saying one thing and one another, but their general spirit is one of complaint against their Lord. They knew he loved them and yet they half thought him cruel. They trusted him and yet had grievous doubts. They called him master and yet they were in a sort of semi-rebellion against him. They owned his sway, his rule that is, but were ready to mutiny against him because he did not exercise his power for their rescue. And that then, uh, that cry that represents their soul's concern, Master, don't you care that we are perishing? Mark 4 verse 38 is the keynote of the subject. Spurgeon has several things that he wants to consider. The first is the apparent indifference of the Lord to his people. Secondly, that this indifference is only apparent. Third, that he does in fact have a real care for them at times when he seems indifferent. And fourth, that they shall see that this is so 
by and by. In other words, that before long they will realise his real care for them, even though they have feared his apparent indifference. So that's the the sequence. It's a a profoundly experimental sermon in that sense. Uh, It's digging into the state of our own souls, perhaps our temptation to think in some way or other that Christ really doesn't care for us, that uh, the storms through which we're passing tempt us to conclude that perhaps the Lord has no real regard for us. And what you'll find in this sermon is, again, Spurgeon's pastoral skill in blending both tender rebuke and careful encouragement. Uh, and I'm using that those phrases carefully. I, I don't mean careful rebuke and tender encouragement, but tender rebuke and careful encouragement. Because uh, when he's rebuking, uh, you, you know you're being rebuked, but the, the love and the gentleness of it is exemplary. And then the encouragements are not uh, wild and uh, and extravagant in the wrong sense. They're they're extravagantly sweet, yes, but they're very well focused. So what you've got here really is an anatomy of ungodly fear exposing our false notions. Those are the tender rebukes. And then an anatomy of God's own care. That's the careful encouragement. And we'll trace along these four headings of Spurgeon's sermon to learn these things for ourselves. First then, says Spurgeon, we, as well as the disciples on the Galilean lake, sometimes complain of the indifference of the Lord to us, and it is but an apparent indifference. And Spurgeon's very, very quickly, and and almost without actually being explicit about us, has made the connections in the introduction and now in the first heading between the experience of the disciples and our experience. Yes, we may not be on a boat in a lake Uh, in a storm, fearing that we're going to uh, be suddenly overwhelmed, but we have the same attitude. Sometimes, he says, the complaint takes this shape. God suffers or allows natural laws to proceed in their prescribed course, even when his own children will be crushed by them. So the Lord doesn't necessarily suspend the laws of nature for the sake of his children. And those laws at such times may appear to be as grim and heartless as if they were managed by the prince of the power of the air. As God has ordained, so does nature move. For us, the floods do not stand upright as a heap, neither do the waters refuse to drown. Whether it be martyr or murderer, the fire devours with equal fury and the sword falls with an equally deadly blow. One event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, he quotes, And from this fact arises many a complaint, and we cry, don't you care that we're perishing? Now, God does not alter the physical laws of the body for the convenience of his chosen, if one whom Jesus loves is sick. To them, poison is still poison, and disease is still disease. But we're very apt, when we're under a trying dispensation, when life becomes difficult under God's rule, to judge the laws of nature to be very pitiless ordinances without bowels of mercy, without any uh, compassion. And we say, Master, don't you care that we perish? Spurgeon therefore reminds his hearers and us that there is no such power as a law of nature acting by itself. All power lies in God, And a law of nature is neither more nor less than a description of the way in which the Lord usually works. And we need to understand then that 
God is in control. Happy is he who in all things beholds a present deity, a God who is there. I see laws of nature, he acknowledges, and I know that God acts according to them, but I see best the God who is behind that law. Law? What force has that? It is God working by the law. He does it all. The truth sets matters in another light, for if the Lord brings the trial upon us, we do not open our mouth but yield to his will. His ways of action must be right, and if they cause us grief, we nevertheless feel that he is not afflicting us willingly or grieving us without design. When we perceive his hand, we kiss the rod. Instead of saying, Master, don't you care that we're perishing? We cry out in resignation, It is the Lord, let him do what seems good to him. So that's the first way in which we complain about the apparent indifference of the Lord to us. Sometimes, says Spurgeon, that lament assumes another shape, and we view the troubles which come upon us as the result of the stern decrees of fate, and shudder because it seems to our unbelief that God has made small account of us and arranged affairs with very slight reference to the weakness, sorrow, and infirmity of his people. Brothers, he says, the most of us now present believe in predestination and are persuaded that the Lord works everything according to the counsel of his will. We believe that all things, great and small, are fixed in the eternal purpose and will surely be as they are ordained. This doctrine becomes, though, the lurking place of a temptation. We gaze upon the ponderous wheels of predestination in their awful revolutions and fear that they will grind us to powder. Fate, then, is a blind man who rushes madly on because he must. But predestination is full of eyes and proceeds in one line because it is the best path which could be taken. Fate is a tyrant, declaring that such a thing shall be because he wills it. Predestination is a father ordering all things for the good of his household. God has his purpose and his way, and his purposes are both for his own glory and for the good of his people. So Spurgeon's point here is that we shouldn't fall into the trap of of seeing the world working by a set of inexorably turning wheels, a sort of a case Sarah Sarah mentality, whatever will be, will be, um, that, that we become fatalistic and fate fatalistic. The difference between us as believers and others is that we know that God is in control. So that which happens to us occurs because in the judgment of infinite wisdom and goodness, it is on the whole best that it should be so. Would we wish the Lord to arrange otherwise? Will you tempt the Holy One of Israel? Will you ask him to do other than that which is wise and just and good and holy and for his own glory? Instead, then, of crying out against destiny, let us cheerfully accept it because the Lord is in it. So we must see the purpose in providence. Or here again, it may be that we're in a different state of heart. So we've had, first of all, the uh, the sense that natural law is inexorably proceeding and trampling us in its way, that there's some sort of fate that is governing things and we just happen to be crushed by it. And now that we're worrying ourselves today because it seems to us that affliction is sent upon men altogether irrespective of their character and that the godly are made to suffer even more than the wicked. So the apostles ask, don't you care that we 
perish. We're your friends, your, your apostles, your servants. Spurgeon says, let's look one minute at this and we shall discover that God does send affliction according to character after all, but not after the rule which flesh and blood would prescribe. It is not written, as many as I hate, I chasten, far from it. He permits the wicked to spring as the grass and allows them to flourish like a green bay tree. As oxen they are well fed, that they may be prepared for the slaughter. They're pampered, but their end is near. But it is written, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. The favourites of heaven are inheritors of the rod. It is not said, the branches which bring forth no fruit shall be pruned. No, they shall be utterly taken away in due season and cast into the fire. But it is written, every branch that bears fruit, he purges it, he prunes it, that it may bring forth more fruit. And so when affliction comes upon our beloved relative who has lived a most exemplary life, or when a painful death happens to an unusually gracious man, we must not judge the Lord unkindly, as though he were unjust, but see his loving hand in it all, and bless him that he deals with our beloved ones as he is wont or accustomed to deal with sons. For what son is there whom the father does not chasten? He scourges every son whom he receives. The gold is put into the furnace because it is gold. It would have been no use to put mere stones and rubbish there. The corn is threshed because it is corn. Had it been weeds, it would have been untouched by the flail. The great owner of heaven's jewels thinks it worth his while to use a more elaborate and sharp cutting machine upon the most valuable stones. A diamond of the first water is sure to undergo more cutting than an inferior one because the king desires that it may have many facets which may throughout eternity with greater splendour reflect the light of the glory of his name. Or here's another possibility. Remember, we're working now through the reasons why God's people or the expressions of the doubts of God's people with regard to the apparent indifference of Christ toward them. Perhaps, dear brothers, we've thought that Jesus didn't care for us because he's not wrought a miracle for our deliverance and hasn't interposed in any remarkable way to help us. My dear brother, he responds, do you know that sometimes God works a greater wonder when he sustains his people in trouble than he would do if he brought them out of it? For him to let the bush burn on and yet not to be consumed is a far grander thing than for him to quench the flame and so to save the bush. Possibly the hard suspicion that Jesus does not care for you takes another form. I don't ask the Lord to work a miracle, but I do ask him to cheer my heart. I want him to apply the promises to my soul. I want his spirit to visit me, as I know he does some good people, so that my pain may be forgotten in the delight of the Lord's presence. I want to feel such a full assurance of the Saviour's presence that the present trial shall, as it were, be swallowed up in a far more exceeding weight of joy. But alas, the Lord hides his face from me, and this makes my trial all the heavier. Beloved, can you not believe in a silent God? Do you always want tokens from God? Must you be petted like a spoiled child? Is your God of such a character that you must needs mistrust him if his face be veiled? Can you trust him no further than you can see him? Besides, you're losing what you have while pining for what you have not. You say, I want promises, and I ask you, what more can he say than to you he hath said, you who unto Jesus for refuge have fled? 
You say you need a token for good. What greater tokens do you require than he has already given you in your past experience, or than he has presented to you in the flowing wounds of a dying saviour? The tokens for good which Jesus gave on the cross ought to be enough and to spare. Still, says one, this is the last of those expressions of doubt and mistrust. If he do not come to me and break the darkness with some light from his presence, I wish he would mitigate the pain I bear. If he will not take it away altogether, yet surely he will not let me utterly perish through its severity. Ah, perish, says Spurgeon. There's the point. Now observe the distinction. That he may try us we can understand, but that he should let us perish we cannot comprehend. No, my dear brother, you are not asked to understand it, for you have not perished yet. Bad as your case is, it might be worse. You are brought very low, but you might be lower. You might be in the dungeons of hell. What a mercy it is that you never can sink lower than the grave. You shall never make your bed in hell. Thank God for that. When you come to the lowest, God interposes. The tide turns when you reach the full point of ebb, and the darkest part of the night is that which preludes the rising of the sun. Be of good courage, you have not perished yet, and let this be a wonder to you. Lord, and am I yet alive, not in torment, not in hell? Why should a living man complain? Should he not still have hope and expect that in his extremity God will appear for him? So far then the various forms in which this temptation to charge the Lord foolishly presents itself to the soul. This brings us to the second point, uh, and these succeeding points are, are briefer and punchier. We've had the anatomy of unbelief, and now we've had the anatomy, now we're having the anatomy of God's care. And I hope you've you've got that sense of tender rebuke. No punches pulled, but Spurgeon is pleading with men and women. He's pointing out the foolishness and the, the unbelief, the, the, the suggestion that God is, is somehow not caring for his people. It's, it's very plainly done, but it's very kindly done. And now, secondly, the indifference of God to his people at any time must be apparent. It cannot be real. So meditate a little. Consider first the character of the triune God of whom we are speaking. The Father. Can he be unkind? His mercy endures forever. His name, his essence is love. It's said of him that he delights in mercy, and we know that he is an unchangeable God, and therefore we are not consumed. And can you, O heir of heaven, believe that he is indifferent to you, his child? You, being evil, are careful for your children. How much more shall your Father who is in heaven pity his own? Can you stand by and see your child tortured with pain and not wish to relieve him? Have you not sometimes felt, O oh mothers, that you would take your children's pangs upon yourselves right joyfully if you could set your dear ones free? And have you, poor fallen creatures, such bowels of compassion, and has your heavenly Father none? Oh, judge him not so, say not to him, carest thou not that we perish? Now the second person of the blessed Trinity in unity, Jesus, the Son of God, your brother as well as God's dear Son, can he forget his people? Has he not taken upon himself your nature? Was he not tempted in all points like as you are? Has he not graven your name upon the palms of his hands and written the dear memorials of his love on his side nearest to his heart? Can you look into the face of the crucified 
and believe that he is indifferent to you? Oh, there was a time in the love of your espousals when his left hand was under your head and his right hand did embrace you, when you would have not have thought so hardly of him. When he has kissed you with the kisses of his mouth and you have known his love to be better than wine, you could not have said such a barbarous thing concerning your well-beloved. No, it cannot be that Jesus should ever be indifferent to his people's woes. And the Spirit, the dear and ever-blessed Holy Spirit who dwells in us, can he be without pity? He condescends to dwell in us and to take upon himself the peculiar or distinctive office of the Comforter, and this is matchless condescension. Do you think that he's the Comforter and yet has no sympathy? A Comforter without sympathy would be a strange being indeed. He'd be a mocker of human woes, but he is full of tender pity. Think of the love of the Spirit and never for a moment suspect that he is careless as to whether you shall perish or not. The triune God is love. Like as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities them that fear him. He cannot be indifferent to the condition of his own. I gave you that at some length because I want you to see the the excellence of Spurgeon's holy rhetoric at this point. He's more or less quoting scripture after scripture, sometimes with the very slightest adaptations uh, or reworkings in order to make the whole flow but he's basically hammering away with the truth of God's word against the, the, the foolish unbelief of God's people. And that's with regard then to the character of the triune God. But he says, again, God's indifference must be apparent and cannot be real, not just because of his own character, but also the ancient deeds of divine love of which the scriptures speak expressly show us that the Lord cannot be careless as to our welfare. Don't you know that the eternal Jehovah loved you before ever the earth was? Have you forgotten that the mountains with their hoary heads are but newborn babes compared with his love to you? Do you hear again this this biblical language, these biblical echoes? Spurgeon, to, to quote him about Bunyan, is bleeding bibline. He chose you, he goes on. He might have passed you by, but he chose you to be his own son. The Lord has appeared of old unto me, says the prophet, saying, Yes, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn you. Love the way the the scriptures bubble out of this man's soul. Has he loved you these myriads of ages to be indifferent to your groans now? Can it be? If he'd meant to cast you away, he would have done so long ago. If he'd wanted reasons for rejecting you, he had reasons from all eternity, for he knew what you would be. No sin in you has been a surprise to him. He foresaw the hardness of your heart and the waywardness of your disposition, and if he could now reject, he would never have chosen you. He would never have taken you to himself at all. Oh, then, let eternal love forbid you to dream that he can ever be careless as to whether you perish or not. Then, think what he's done for you. Do you think that Christ came from heaven to earth to save you and now is indifferent about you? Do you think that he lived here 30 years of toil and weariness for your redemption and will now cast you away? And do you believe that he went up to the cross for you, having endured Gethsemane's terrible garden and its bloody sweat for you and yet has no concern about you? Do you think he bore all the wrath of God on your behalf and now thinks your salvation such a trifling thing that he doesn't care whether you perish or not? 
Do you believe that he slept in the grave for you and rose again for you and is gone within the veil for you and pleads before God for you and is, after all, a hypocrite and has no real love to you? This is this is potent. These uh, questions really unpack the, the horrors of our doubt and show us the wonders of God's love. Man, he says, if what Christ has done does not convince you, what can? Many waters could not quench his love, neither could the floods drown it. Will you not confide in him for the present and the future after what he has done for you? And then consider again what he's wrought upon you personally and what you've known and felt within yourself. Once a sinner near despair sought your mercy seat by prayer, mercy heard and set him free. Lord, that mercy came to me. Many days have passed since then, many changes I have seen, yet have been upheld till now. Who could hold me up but thou? Thou hast helped in every need. This emboldens me to plead. After so much goodness past, will you let me sink at last? There's the point. If God had not done so much for us already, we might question his intentions concerning us. But after the goodness and the mercy he's manifested, surely he'll go through with it and perfect the work which he has begun. He spent too much upon his work to relinquish it now. And as so often, as time passes, Spurgeon gets briefer and tighter. Recollect too, beloved, this is a sweet refreshment to the spirit. Recollect the relationship which exists between you and your God. Fatherhood and sonship full of comfort. Can the Lord be an untender father? Will the Lord cast away his own children? Can a woman forget her sucking child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yes, they may forget, yet will I not forget you. And then remember the divine promises. Will God be a liar and let us perish? Remember his oath. It's a base profanity to think that he can ever forgo his oath. And so here are the counters to those foul doubts about God's compassionate care toward us. Does God appear indifferent? It must be apparent. It cannot be real because of his character, because of his ancient deeds of divine love, because of what he's done for us, because how he's worked in us personally, because of the relationship that exists between us and our God, and because of the promises that he has made. So thirdly and briefly, there is in our Lord a real care for his people in the midst of his apparent indifference. It was certainly so on the Galilean Sea. Observe in the narrative that though Christ was asleep, he was in the ship. He'd not left his disciples. And however God may seem to deal with his people, he is still with them. Fear not, he says, for I am with you. If there be nothing more, the presence of the Lord ought to be enough to cheer us. Our heavenly Father knows our need. To be banished from the presence of God would be hell, but however tossed with tempest our vessel may be, we cannot despair so long as the Lord is our companion. Then remember that though Christ was asleep, he was tossed about as much as the disciples were, and in the same peril. If we are persecuted, Jesus is persecuted. If we suffer, the head suffers in the members. Our cause is his cause. This should encourage us. Remember that our Lord was benefiting his people while he was asleep, for he was setting them a good example, an example of sacred restfulness in times of trouble. It's a lovely little human touch, isn't it, almost? Away from these uh, great sweeps of doctrine, remember that the Lord Jesus could sleep in the storm, and that's an example. The Lord would have his people restful and not fretful, so he gives his beloved sleep. 
We've never read of our Lord sleeping except on this occasion, this majestic occasion, when he was asleep in a storm-tossed bark, a boat, with his head on a pillow, because his heart was on the bosom of God. He did as good as say to all his servants, rest in troublous times, and leave all in the hands of him who cares for you. His sleeping was an acted sermon upon, let not your hearts be troubled. Moreover, he was testing them and revealing themselves to themselves. They were to be fishers of men all their lives, and fishermen must encounter storms. This was one of the storms of their apprenticeship, when their captain was with them, that when they came to be captains themselves, no strange thing might happen to them if a tempest overtook them. And last and best of all, Christ was caring for them because he was making their danger an opportunity for the display of himself. He's going to show them his omnipotence, but how could he do that if there were no difficulties for his divine power to encounter? For a man to beard a chained lion is little. Let the monster loose and only a hero will encounter him. And the the horrors of the storm reveal and give opportunity for the revelation of the the power and the goodness of their God. And so, says Spurgeon, there's the last thought, that in due time all those who trust shall see that God does indeed care about them. When Jesus was awakened, he was not angry. He might have walked away from his disciples if he'd pleased. It was quite in his power to traverse the billows and to have left them in disgust. And after the hard things we have said and thought of God, he might leave us to perish if he would, but he will do no such thing. Jesus did not reject the unworthy prayers of his feeble followers. He might have taken umbrage and have said, Is that what you think of me? Is this the way in which you speak of me? But not thus did he upbraid them. He did check them gently, out of very love to them, but there was no anger. Again, tender rebuke. Spurgeon is like his master in this. He accepted their prayers and he awoke, and what an awaking it was. How mighty were his works, there was no trace of storm another moment after he had been aroused. Troubled one, then, you will enjoy calm yet. Poor, tried and tempted child of God, you will see days in which you will wonder where your troubles are. You will say to yourself, they're quite gone, I have nothing left to be troubled with. Christ has chased my griefs away. Stand to your post, then. Trust in your Lord, think well of him and rest in him. For as the Lord lives, no vessel that has Christ on board shall suffer shipwreck. He who has faith is insured against destruction. Wait on the Lord, even if the vision tarry, and fair sunlight and smooth saving shall be your reward. And so then, two brief applications. First, to the church in its state at this present time. The signs of the times are dark. To me, the worst trouble is that Jesus seems to be asleep. There is nothing doing, no great revival of religion and but little power with the ministry. I am, however, comforted by the reflection that Jesus sleeps, but he never oversleeps. When we fall asleep, we do not know how to awake, but Jesus Christ does. He sleeps, but he does not oversleep. Glory be to his name, he sleeps, but he is not dead, and as long as he is alive, our joy is alive. While there is a living Christ, there will always be a living church. There may be both a sleeping Christ and a sleeping church, but neither Christ nor his church can perish. So you understand that Spurgeon isn't suggesting that that Christ is physically asleep and unaware in heaven. He's using the the illustration of this uh, episode to to emphasize that the apparent 
disregard or, or indifference that Christ has for his church is only that. So be not discouraged nor discomforted. The storm is not at its worst yet. The vessel's not filled with the waves yet. The water is not up to her bulwarks yet. She floats still. When she can scarce keep from sinking and is almost going down by the head, then the captain will stand in the front of the vessel and calm the seas. When the roaring waves nigh overwhelm her, he will say to them, Peace, be still. That's a real encouragement to God's people. In days which I would suggest had Spurgeon lived in, he would have perhaps used stronger language even than this for he is seeing blessings the likes of which most of us can only long for. But he wants us to understand Christ is not unaware. Christ is not indifferent, no matter how distant he may appear. Yet he still has regard for his people, and when it is right, he will rouse himself for his glory and our good. And then the other and final application is to the sinner. Lord, help me is the right prayer for any such soul. Does he not care for a poor sinner? Will he let me go down to hell and think nothing of it? Do you? Would you let a, a, a praying sinner go to hell if you could save him, asked Spurgeon? So what makes you think Christ would not? Believe in his love. Cast yourself upon his grace. And when you believe in him, you are saved. Do not think hard thoughts of him. Touch the hem of his garment and you shall be made whole. Trust your guilty soul with him, and it is well with you now and forever. May God give you his blessing. For Jesus' sake. Amen. So ends Spurgeon's sermon on this occasion. And I I hope you'll agree with me that it is very sweet, uh, grasping both what goes on in the hearts of men and what is true of the heart of God, and preaching to the soul so that we can see both what is wrong in our thinking but are then led to what is right according to God's revelation. What sweetness and and help there is for us here, what rebukes tenderly issued, and what hopes sweetly held out. I hope it's been a blessing to you, and I hope you'll join us again, God willing, on another occasion for more from the heart of Spurgeon. Next week, we're reading from Sermon 1123 to 1129. And as I've said earlier, you can join us on X if you'd like to follow along, or you can uh, tune in for the podcast and you can get the written sermon from Media Gratii for the featured sermon 1124. Beautiful sermon, God Beseeching Sinners by His Ministers. So do join us again. Do leave us a review if you've got a moment. Uh, But most of all, we trust that uh, this uh, study of uh, Spurgeon's sermons draws our attention and fixes our hearts upon the beauties and the glories of God in Christ as his spirit brings them into our experience. Until we're able to meet again in this way, I trust that the Lord God will indeed bless you richly. Thank you very much indeed for listening.